You know what that sound means. It's time for the Michigan DNR's Wild Talk Podcast. Welcome to the Wild Talk Podcast, where representatives from the DNR's Wildlife Division chew the fat and shoot the scat about all things habitat, feathers, and fur. With insights, interviews, and your questions answered on the air, you'll get a better picture of what's happening in the world of wildlife here in the great state of Michigan. Welcome to Wild Talk. I'm Holly Vaughn, and hosting with me this episode are Rachel Leitner and Hannah Schauer. Hello, Holly. Hello. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Today, we'll be talking with Carrie Fitzpatrick about a very cool photo project that's been recording forest management practices over time. It's very neat. Yes, it'll be a great episode. And then we'll be answering your questions from the mailbag. Uh, But first, we'll kick things off with what's happening around the state. A base license for $11 is a fair fare to go hunt hare, or even a squirrel or two if you care. You hunted deer last month, the license is already there, so no more money from your pocket or your billfold square. To get your share of squirrel or hare to eat yourself or share with flair and fanfare with a nice set of flatware at a table you prepare, just bundle up warm with something to wear and don't miss when you shoot or you're liable to swear and possibly despair if you see no more signs of hide nor hair. So, happy hunting to all, and y'all take care. for some updates on what is going on in the wildlife division around the state. So we're going to kick it off in the north. Holly, what is going on in the Upper Peninsula? Well, the winter is a somewhat slower time of the year for our field staff, and attentions tend to turn to administrative and planning work for the upcoming field and hunting seasons this, you know, spring, summer, fall. Right, a little warmer that way. Being inside planning versus outside. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Especially in the snowy Upper Peninsula. Mm -hmm. So it's a good opportunity to catch up on data entry and report writing and lots of other office work that gets pushed aside during the busy fall hunting seasons. Every three years, uh, the Wildlife Division re-examines deer hunting regulations. And this year is a regulation setting year. Staff in the UP are working closely with the division's deer specialists to prepare recommendations for the period 2020 to 2022, that three-year period. A major part of this effort will be to assess deer population size and also trends relative to past years, and they'll be working on developing antlerless license quotas for each deer management unit in the Upper Peninsula and in the Lower Peninsula as well. And staff will be discussing topics that were brought to their attention by hunters and others who have an interest in deer management. So lots of conversations going on about what should change, what could change um, for deer hunting regulations for the upcoming three years. Let's uh, take a jump below the bridge now. And uh, Rachel, what do we have happening in the northern lower region? I imagine maybe it's slightly snowy and cold there We have really similar work objectives as the UP right now. So similar to everything that the UP has been doing in the northern lower, we also have had a lot of meetings um, and there's a lot of work planning going on there. Uh, we've been recapping what's happened this past year and putting that into work plans for what we want to accomplish this next year in 2020. So our field staff and the wildlife species specialist have been meeting with 
lots of groups, universities, other state federal agencies, um, hunters and hunting groups to discuss potential changes to elk and deer regulations, um, since those regulations are now up for discussion and changes. And so these meetings and these work planning meetings will continue to carry out throughout the rest of February. And after that, people will put on warm gear and head out to the woods again. All right. So let's go a little further south now where we might be a little bit warmer, perhaps. Um, Let's start in the southeastern region. Holly, what do we have happening over there? Well, it's been pretty mild in the southeast region so far this year. And uh, we still have water that's wide open in the southeast. And (laughs) like the Detroit River is wide open, Lake St. Clair, Lake Erie. Pretty incredible for this time of year. No ice fishing yet. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, (laughs) there are still some waterfowl hunting opportunities in February. In February. Yeah. So goose season runs until February 10th in Zone 3, uh, which is most of southern Michigan, except for the Muskegon County Wastewater System and the Allegan County Goose Management Units. Be sure to get out and get a few geese for the freezer before the waterfowl season ends for seven long, miserable months (laughs) before it starts up again in September. Uh, The Southeast region is also doing their midwinter waterfowl surveys right now. So they head up to the skies in little airplanes to count waterfowl, especially on Lake St. Clair and Western Lake Erie, and then also on the west side on Lake Michigan as well. They also survey smaller inland lakes, which some of those might be open this year, which is pretty unusual Mm -hmm, (laughs) for winter waterfowl surveys. And then they also take a look at rivers and wetlands and farm fields for wintering Canada geese and those sandhill cranes that just don't want to leave Michigan and stick around for the whole winter. So why would you (laughs) if it's not cold? If it's mild and you can find food, why not just stay? (laughs) So the Wildlife Division cooperates with other states and also the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to survey local migrant and wintering waterfowl populations to determine population status and habitat use trends. I have a question, Holly. Would you anticipate seeing different types of species this type of year now that we have more open water than normal, or will it be relatively similar? to? Yeah, so this time of year, um, what we're seeing um, are a lot of our winter ducks. So we're seeing things like canvasbacks, um, redheads, scop, and on Lake St. Clair and Western Lake Erie, they gather in gigantic flocks like um, the Detroit River system, Lake St. Clair, they can host rafts of tens of thousands of redheads and canvasbacks. And it's actually one of the the biggest wintering places in the world for these birds. So good birding destination if you're looking to see some waterfowl. Absolutely. I would imagine that would look like a a floating mat of feathers. Mm Mm-hmm. Just black dots as far as the eye can see <laughs> until you get your binoculars so I was on it. Say, bring your spotting scope <laughs> and binoculars. Yeah. So um, with with the water open, you know, they should see maybe a, a few more ducks than usual this year. The Winter Waterfowl Survey is part of a continent-wide waterfowl survey that must be completed during the first week of January at places where waterfowl tend to congregate. So They've um, finished these flights, but are now like taking a look at the the data that was collected. 
So the results of this survey helped to set hunting regulations and determine population trends in the Mississippi Flyway, which Michigan is part of. So this year there was, like I met, like I said, lots of open water, and you know, which isn't always the case. So that might change some of the numbers that we're seeing for this year. Lots of waterfowl to be had. Mm-hmm. Finally, uh, Rachel, can you let us know uh, what's happening in the southwestern region? Sure. So there is quite a bit of action going on in southwest right now, specifically with timber sales. Timber! <laughs> <laughs> you can expect to see some trees being cut on a few state game areas throughout the region. There is about 15 timber sales planned for 2020. Um, And most of those harvests are going to begin um, in January and February. And they'll proceed throughout the winter months because there's this many benefits to um, harvesting trees on land during the wintertime. It reduces soil disturbances or mitigates high water tables um, and encourages successful revegetation in those cut areas. And it's also important to remember that harvesting portions of the forest in those areas Uh, will generate space and sunlight for new trees to grow. So we can really improve the overall forest health by removing diseased trees or trees that have reached their age limit. uh, And the result provides high-quality wildlife habitat and beautiful spaces that we all can enjoy. And lastly, we have an update on the Trowbridge Dam removal. Uh, A few episodes back in August, we discussed the Allegan County Dam and its removal. Um, and how it was entering into phase one, which was to stabilize the dam and remove the powerhouse superstructure. It's a great term. It is. Superstructure. (laughs) So I'm happy to report that has been successfully done. And soon we will begin phase two of the project, uh, in which we begin to remove the contaminants that have been trapped behind the dam. So there may be intermittent closures, Um, or access to that dam site. So if you're in the area, you'll just want to check in um, with the local staff to see if anything is closed during the time you want to use the area. But this dam has been the highest priority dam removal for the state currently, and so it's really excellent to see such great work happening. All right. Well, that's all for Around the State. Next up, we'll be talking with Carrie Fitzpatrick about this very cool photo project. So you aren't going to want to go anywhere. There are many camping and lodging opportunities available in Michigan state parks. When you choose state park campgrounds, you get more than just a campsite. State parks offer a diverse range of recreational opportunities, including hands-on instructional classes, nature programs, places to fish, boat launches, family-friendly events, and much more. Reservations can be made six months in advance, so why wait? Visit MIDNRreservations.com or call 1-800-44-PARKS to make a reservation. Welcome back to Wild Talk. Today we are joined by Carrie Fitzpatrick, and we are going to be chatting about the awesome Camera Point project. Carrie, thank you for being here today. It's good to be here with you. So uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you started with the DNR, and, and how you got to this current role with the Wildlife Division. I'm the Wildlife Habitat Specialist. Started in 2004. I was working at the University of Maryland, a position open here that seemed very interesting. Um, I was interested in moving from talking about management to getting involved in management. And this uh, wildlife habitat specialist position seemed like one that would do that. Um, My job is to work with statewide habitat issues. 
these would be things like coordinating prescribed fire for the division, being involved with state forest management and compartment reviews. That's how we manage our state forests. I'm responsible for coordinating our leases of state land that the Wildlife Division administers. I'm responsible for coordinating federal aid issues, uh, land management matters with the state federal aid. I'm responsible for all of our state historic preservation reviews, things of that sort. A whole gamut of different things that you work on. Very cool. One of the uh, very interesting projects, of course, that we uh, wanted to have you on the show to talk about today is this uh, Camera Point project. So can you give us a brief overview of what the project is and kind of what it's all about? Yes, sure. The Camera Point project was a project that was started in the the mid-1920s, and it involves choosing sites throughout the state forest where the photograph is taken and it's taken at a particular location and then it's repeated every 10 or 20 years. So they come back to, someone will come back to the exact same spot that the photo was taken a decade ago, take the picture again. So what we end up having is a series of these photographs and it becomes a little bit like time-lapse photography or a little flip book in a sense that you could kind of flip through them and you could see the changes that occurred in the state forest over what turns out we're we're approaching 100 years. Wow, that's pretty cool. I've seen a couple of the pictures and uh, like the series, and it's fascinating how much things change over that amount of time. And then some aspects, how much they don't really change either. (laughs) You get the gamut. So where uh, in Michigan are some of these photo locations and Are they all throughout the state? Are they just on public lands? Could you tell us a little bit about where the photos have been taken? Sure. Uh, The camera points are uh, spread across 12 counties in Michigan. There's probably about a third of them are the UP, uh, mostly in the East UP. And then the the other two-thirds are in Northern Lower, mostly going down the center, center of the Northern Lower. Photo points were set up by a person who envisioned this project from the very beginning. It was uh, started by P.S. Lovejoy, who was our first division chief, started the, the job in 1927, and the photographs started right after it. So he must have had uh, some good ideas about scientific management. So were these all on public lands, or were they? did they start on public lands, and has land ownership changed at all over time? Almost all of them are on uh, state forest land or national forest land. There are a few spots where they originally were not taken, like a, on a roadside looking at a private farm, as an example, and that was looking at private land. And there was one site that used to be state forest land, and it it was sold somewhere along the line, and it's now private land. So majority are on public land, a few are on and how many photos are in the whole series? There are 365 photos in, in the whole series, and there are 49 camera points. So with those changing landscapes coming back 10 and 20 years, I would imagine there's a lot of growth in some areas. Are you always able to get back to the exact location that the photo is going to be taken from? When they managed uh, the forest back at the turn of the century, they were using the same tools that they used for surveying, which were these chains. They were like 60 foot long, 66 foot long chains, links, and they would lay them out and that would be how they measure things in the, in the forest. 
So the descriptions are written out in, you know, uh, at this section line, go four chains down north and then six chains south. And, you know, it, it, I'm so that, glad it's not like that anymore. <laughs> so when we went to look at uh, to when I went back to do the, this last set of photographs, there were, well, for one, for as an example, I got to one that where their series of photos were being taken from uh, fire towers. Well, we used to have fire towers, but over the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, we've been dismantling them, get to the site, there's no fire tower there anymore. So while the picture was taken, the photos were taken up at like 50 or 80 feet up in the air but in the before, now all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm down on the ground. So it, uh, that's, that was one change. Another change was that we, I went to a place where they used to be part of what they called the prairie chicken area. So it was a open area with shrubs and the like in it. Well, as the wildlife division was doing management, they realized they wanted to maintain that opening for prairie chickens and with the idea that sometime in the future they may reintroduce them. And they, as they were managing it, they did a very good job and they just literally removed all the vegetation that was in there. So what, well, in the past, there would have been shrubs or trees that you could go and sort of line up the photograph and say, oh yeah, this is where the photograph was taken. Well, they were, when I got there, it was nothing, but it looked similar to a cornfield that was just denuded of all vegetation. And there was no way for me to, to figure out where the, where the photo was taken. And then um, they, uh, when I was taking the photos, it was immediately after the Duck Lake fire up in the UP. And I got there and there were, there were trees there, but they were all burned down and they were all laying on the ground. There was just no way to even figure out where the photo was taken. So I, you know, I, Followed the directions to the spot to the best of my ability, and then took the took the photo. There's other ones, other sites where we had jack pine, for instance, and there had been a fire. And you can see originally where there are charred trees and 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 uh, no other real vegetation. And as the photos go along, you can see that 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 there are, uh, jack pine is sprouting up and starting to grow. And then I get when I went to take the, take the photo, I get there and there's not a forest there anymore. It's just young trees that are like two or three feet high. They harvested it, the entire area, and either replanted it or it, or, or it started to regenerate on its own. And it was, again, it was another situation where it was very difficult to try to match up the, the photograph because you're, they're based on, you know, the trees and what they look like. So how did you get roped into this project? How did it land in your lap? No one ever really assigned me the job. Um, I started the job in 2004. I'd only been in the job for a couple of weeks. And one of the wildlife division employees came over to my desk and he said, this is my last day I'm retiring. He says, I don't know what to do with this. And you're the only person I think could, who should be, whose job seems to be able to handling it. And he just handed me this binder uh, that was full of photographs and was busy at the time. I didn't even look at it for a couple of months. And then when I started looking at it, I realized what a treasure it was and then started thinking about, you know, what we needed to do to continue it. Wow. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Just kind of out of the blue, Ooh, fell right. in your lap. <laughs> <laughs> so why would you say a project like this is important? What, what information do you think it can provide to us as wildlife managers? The big part is that humans, we don't do a good job of perceiving the passage of time. It just, 
we we look at things and we look at it as it is today. And for somebody who, and particularly this relates to the general public, if we harvest trees in an area and there's three or four varieties of trees that they do not grow in the presence of shade from other trees. So if you want to regenerate a forest of, say, like jack pine, you really need to cut it all down and then start over again. And with that, then it provides an opportunity for the trees to grow. If you're someone from the public and you see that, what you see is somebody has cut down my forest and they don't realize that those trees are fast growing and that within four or five years, you'll see trees growing there. And within like 10 or 20 or 30 years, there'll actually be what you would call a forest there. It just allows us to see that and to, you know, kind of grasp what happens with as the passage of time. And I have to say this, that even wildlife biologists have a hard time kind of perceiving that. And even some of our constituents, like hunters, they kind of don't realize that change is really occurring on them. There's a, uh, one of my colleagues was telling me of a story of a hunter, elderly gentleman. He's probably like 70 years old. And he was saying, I don't know why. He says, what has changed? He says, I used to hunt snowshoe hare here. I used to sit on this stump right here and hunt snowshoe hare. Well, he didn't realize that when he started hunting them, they, that the forest there was small, was young, and it had a lot of vegetation that was close to the ground that the snowshoe hare likes. But as the, as the forest matured, it was maturing, and he wasn't really observing that happening. And, and as it went on, the, 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 the trees started growing up, and then there was no vegetation in the ground, and they weren't there. So that's, a, that's an example of something for the, the public to see. I often think about that, like when we hear from hunters, you know, I've I've been a deer hunting in the same spot for for thirty or forty years, and and I used to see dozens of deer on my property, and now I'm not seeing anything. <laughs> Could that possibly be related to the passage of time and and habitat changing? Sure. on the landscape. Sure, De- deer is an example. Uh, deer they need something to eat. So if you have a forest that's young and there's say deciduous trees or conifer trees that are close to the ground where they can eat the vegetation, then that works out really well for them. But as the trees get taller, then they shade out the lower branches and then that's not available for them. At the same time, the trees are getting taller and they're shading out the vegetation on the ground. And what once was had a lot of herbaceous or forbs growing that the, that the deer could eat, it's no longer available there because it's shaded out and it's more of a leaf litter on the bottom there. So that's a is a really good example. Passage of time <laughs> affects us all. <laughs> so how could this project impact wildlife and forest management in Michigan? I'm sure that P.S. Lovejoy, who started the project, he was committed to scientific management. And if you think about this, photography really started out in the, eight, in the middle of the 1800s. It wasn't until 1888 that they started developing like roll films so that you didn't have to carry these heavy glass plates to take pictures. And then it wasn't until 1900 that the, they started mass producing cameras. So in a sense, it, the, the, we didn't really have the technology available until the beginning of the 19th century for the average biologist or resource manager to take pictures. Well, that occurred at the same time roughly about the same time that P.S. Lovejoy was, he was a assistant professor at um, University of Michigan, 
And he was that was probably where, you know, his his concept of scientific management started. And you can see that uh, if you could take pictures of a site and come back to it, you could be observing that the successional change that that happened with vegetation. And that was a beginning to be a key concept in the in the early part of the 1900s was this idea that that uh, ecosystems go through a, a series of changes. And I think that's probably what he was interested in when he started the project. Probably not quite as much as now we're thinking of what, what the public can learn about it and what our, our fellow, our colleagues can learn about it. This was, I think, more, probably was more scientifically oriented. The moment, I haven't had anybody that I've talked to that, that kind of perceived it as some sort of a scientific record. Um, I was just speaking with someone the other day and he was talking about, well, Maybe this is something that MNFI would be interested in. I mean, they're the natural features inventory. These are people that inventory things like that. And there might there's a possibility for, for them to use something like that. Well, it's a fascinating project. So if people want to learn more about this project or, or see some of the photos that you've taken, where can they go to find that? When I, we, we took the last set of photographs, we were looking at the, the digital imagery but the rest of the images were all, you know, prints and, and negatives. And we were faced with, what are we going to do with these to preserve them? So we took them over to the, uh, the, the Michigan State Archives, and they said, yes, yes, this is, this is really important material. And we, can, we have the technology, we have the, the facilities to preserve this material. So they, they preserved it, and then they digitized all of the images so, so that they would be available to people. And now they're the, although the actual images are not available to, to people, the digital images are. And there's a, a website on that the state of Michigan has is called Michiganology. And uh, there is a website that's set up just for the camera point project. So you can go in, click on a particular site and then there will be a series of photographs that you can look at that you can see the images. That's awesome. We'll, of course, be sure to include a link to that in the show notes so that you can find it easily. So thank you so much for joining us today, Carrie. This was an interesting conversation. Thank you. Yeah. So stick around. Next up, we'll answer your questions from our mailbag. It's the Great Backyard Bird Count. It's time once again for the free, fun birding event that you can do from the comfort of your own home. The 23rd Annual Great Backyard Bird Count will be held Friday, February 14th through Monday, February 17th, 2020. To participate, count birds for at least 15 minutes on one or more days of the four-day event. For more information or to report your counts, visit birdcount.org. Welcome back. Now it is time for us to answer your questions from the mailbag. One, two, three. Hannah, what questions do you have? Well, I've got a couple here. So the first one is from Sarah, who asks, are you guys going to be doing the deer patch design contest again? And yes, we are. So um, the... Deer Management Cooperator Patch, uh, for those of you who are deer hunters and bring your deer to a DNR check station, you've likely received one of these patches before. Uh, they've been a collector's item for hunters since the 70s, uh, so they're very popular. 
And each year, the patch features a different design. And so the past couple years now, we've been doing a contest to get these fabulous artists and other folks from around the state and around country, the world, you know, wherever, who uh, want to help us design and submit their ideas for the patch. Um, so this year, our designs submissions are due by March 10th of 2020. And um, we've got a bunch of contest rules and entry information for folks on our website. And we'll include those links in our show notes as well. Uh, so you can look at all of those details if you are interested in participating in the contest. Yeah, a really fun opportunity to use your creativity. Absolutely. Um, and the other question I have today also has to do sort of with deer. Um, <laughs> so Ben wrote in asking if it is legal to use an old deer carcass as bait for coyote hunting purposes. All right. So Ben, you can use deer as bait as long as it was legally harvested and is open season for deer hunting or you collected a roadkill deer and have gotten a salvage permit for that animal. Um, and so if you're interested in learning more about how you can use legally harvested game uh, for hunting or trapping for fur bearers, that is on uh, page 18 of the Fur Harvester Digest, kind of goes over those um, regulations. And um, the other important thing... And to remember, as I mentioned, you need a roadkill savage permit um, if you're using a roadkill deer. Um, and you can get those applications at michigan.gov slash roadkill permit. Uh, but please be aware that there are restrictions on deer carcass movement outside of the county where the deer was killed. So you want to be cautious if you're going to be transporting that deer away from where it was killed or any great distance. So please see uh, page 62 of the Hunting Digest for those uh, transportation restrictions. Uh, and again, we'll include links in the show notes for you uh, if you're interested in checking those out. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Hannah. Mm -hmm. Well, I got a question from Barb, who is asking about her bird feeders. And so she likes to feed the birds every year and has been seeing fewer birds this winter and is wondering why that is. So it's hard to say exactly what the the cause might be. Sometimes, you know, changes in the local environment can cause the the number of birds that you're seeing at your feeder to decrease. Maybe you had a big evergreen tree that the birds really liked to hide in that's now gone and and they're going somewhere else to spend the cold days, or maybe there's been some construction in your neighborhood that has kind of disturbed the birds. Um, that could be a couple of reasons why you're not seeing the birds that you usually see. Um, another reason is that we've had a really, really a fairly mild winter, all told. And, um, you know, some birds that usually come down from Canada. So some of the feeder birds that we see every year, like chickadees and blue jays, they actually come down from Canada. Um, are, you know, the, the residents stay, but some of the Canadian birds move down into Michigan to spend the winter because it's more mild here in winter, but it's been fairly mild uh, further north as well. So we, we have 
weather conditions that may be keeping birds um, out of the state. And then also uh, seed crops were very abundant in Canada as well. And so we tend to see those big migrations when there isn't as much food. Um, and and since it's it's abundant this year, we're not seeing birds like pine siskins. We're not seeing um, some of the winter finches that come down from the north, like uh, purple finches and crossbills and things like that. So those could be some of the reasons why you're not seeing those birds at your bird feeders this year. Uh, lots of lots of possible explanations, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. yeah, notice less birds hanging out. Just and mm-hmm. I would assume it's because they have more natural food sources mm-hmm. that might be and, tastier. And when when it's as warm as some days have been here in southern Michigan, like we've had days that have gotten up into the mid forties, low fifties. I've seen insects around those days, and and that's <laughs> that's an opportunity for them to find food. High, and, pro, high in protein and fat. Yeah. Good and, uh, energy. <laughs> and then they don't have to come to the feeder because there's plenty of food around. Well, thanks, Holly. Um, I had received a question from Dave, and uh, his question was regarding antler sheds and if it's legal to keep an antler shed that you find on public land. The answer is yes, you can collect those sheds if you find them. Um, there's no permit needed. However, if the antlers are attached to a head, or if you find um, other skulls or carcasses from other game species, you cannot collect those parts without using um, that a kill tag for that particular animal um, or having a scientific collector's permit. So, And if you do find an animal and you have the proper kill tag for it, it also has to be in the open season for that game species um, for you to collect it. Absolutely. So basically the reason behind that is we don't want you to bring home a a deer skull and some deer antlers and, you know, someday for whatever reason you have a conservation officer over for dinner and he's like, hey, when'd you get that deer? And and (laughs) maybe maybe you don't have the proper documentation for it, which could potentially get you in trouble. So we don't want you to get into any sort of inadvertent trouble. All right. Well, thank you, ladies. As we zip this segment to a close, remember, if you have questions about wildlife or hunting, you can call 517-284-WILD or email dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov or stop by. Your question could be featured on the mailbag segment. The 2020 Winter Free Fishing Weekend is scheduled for February 15th and 16th and is a fun outdoor event the whole family can enjoy. All fishing license fees are waived during these two days and a recreation passport is not required for entry into state park and recreation areas during this time. All fishing regulations still apply. For more information or for a list of Free Fishing Weekend events, visit michigan.gov slash freefishing. February, and maybe you're thinking about that special someone in your life. You aren't alone. Many wildlife species are also thinking about romance this time of the year. Ah, yes, tis the season. I recently heard a pair of great horned owls calling to one another, and it sounded so romantic. In fact, the great horned owl is usually the first owl to breed here in Michigan, and they're maybe sitting on their eggs already. 
a little bit of a challenge, I would think, to keep those eggs warm in the middle of the winter, but, you know, whatever works. Um, and then we have other Michigan owls, such as barred owls and sawwet owls, are starting their courtship and will be laying eggs in the next month or two. So a lot of birds getting busy right now, which is contrary to what a lot of people think. Most of the time you think spring, but we've got some that start <laughs> early. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of wildlife, and I bet a lot of folks have also noticed there's more coyotes or foxes wandering through their area. For a good reason, they are also looking for a mate. Most breedings for these canids occurs January through March, so you're likely to see an increase in activity and vocalizations from these critters. Yeah, they are much more vocal as they are communicating with their mate or letting others know where their territory is. I know I hear yips and howls every once in a while in the middle of the night, wake you up. (laughs) Um, And once a pair has established their territory, they'll start looking for a suitable den site to raise their young over the summer. If these wild canines aren't your favorite animals to see around your neighborhood, now is a good time to start hazing coyotes. And hazing means just kind of a gentle scare tactic. So maybe clapping your hands or yelling really loud or banging pots and pans or something like that to try and scare them away. When you haze coyotes or foxes, they won't view your yard as a quiet place to raise their babies over the summer months. So while you think it might be kind of rude to interrupt their courtship, the more consistently that you haze them, the less likely they're going to want to hang around your yard and potentially cause um, some some concern for your neighbors. Right. Um, And it's also a good idea if you do, like Holly said, if you have some wild canines and aren't a fan of having them around, it's a good idea to look for attractants um, that might be making your area more appealing. So easy access to food sources can make your area especially appealing to a fox or a coyote. Yes, um, and it's a good, also a good idea to think about removing bird feeders from your yard as these attract small birds um, and other animals like rabbits and squirrels, which are good natural food sources for foxes and coyotes. And make sure you aren't leaving any pet foods outside and keep your trash indoors until the morning of your trash collection day. And if you have a fox or a coyote, that is causing you concern, there are permitted nuisance wildlife control companies that you can contact for removal assistance. Before we close, I did want to mention something more about birds, my favorite. So My Birds has a bunch of upcoming winter events this month, including a great backyard bird count birding tour at the Belle Isle Nature Center. You might not think of February as a good time for bird watching, but you can see all kinds of great species. And at that great backyard bird count on Belle Isle, which is right on the Detroit River, you might see some of those canvasbacks, redheads, some mallards, some other cool ducks that we talked about earlier. So we'll be sure to include a link to event information in our show notes. And also, if you're looking for something fun to do with your family, Um, The Great Backyard Bird Count is going on February 14th through 17th and is a great opportunity for you to head out to a park or observe your bird feeders and record what you're seeing. And this adds to uh, information that um, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has been keeping track of for decades now. And so you you can be a citizen scientist and participate in the, the great backyard bird count. 
Well, that about wraps it up for us. Um, we hope that you all can spend some time outdoors uh, enjoying some wildlife watching or recreation this month with your family and friends. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you back here in March. This has been the Wild Talk Podcast, your monthly podcast airing the first of each month and offering insights into the world of wildlife across the state of Michigan. You can reach the Wildlife Division at 517-284-9453 or dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov.